Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky. Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate an issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed and commentary by guests and callers. On this weekly broadcast, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. As of this month, we are the official educational and introductory program representing the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. If you want to know about the new abolitionist movement, what it is and what it's about, this is officially the place to start. On this day in 1765, the British Parliament enacted the Stamp Act, which eventually led directly to the Stamp Tax Rebellions and finally the Revolutionary War of Independence. For nearly a decade, between 1765 In 1775, colonialists resorted to rioting, burning, looting, and committing acts of extreme violence against tax collectors, British officials, and colonists turned British cohorts. This was the catalyst for the birth of America 252 years ago today. We are now three days away from November 4th, a day of national sustained protests organized by Antifa. The conspiracy theories are flying furiously and describing everything from an armed uprising from race by racist to a massive military EMP wave blackout. So let's talk about it. We'll also discuss how local jails have turned into debtors' prisons as cities and counties imprison poor people who can't pay fines for traffic violations, minor offenses, or court costs. We'll play a clip from On Contact with Chris Hedges interviewing Alex Vital talking about that very issue and its rampant constitutional violations. Hat tip to Otis Griffin. Tonight, we want to go over the humanitarian crisis going on at McCormick Correctional Institution in South Carolina. Then we'll discuss the convenient rewrite and whitewash of Civil War history and slavery by White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. No matter what you talk about, the conversation keeps coming back to the white elephant in the room, slavery. In business news, the GEO Group 
International Prison Slavery Corporation is giddy with how much money they are making and have done everything but give ICE a bouquet of roses and an award for being their number one customer. So, question, did Abraham Lincoln know about convict leasing? Answer, you're damn right he did. We'll go over his private letter to Alexander H. Stevens on December 22, 1860 and show how that explains the 13th Amendment. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Elizabeth Freeman, 1742 to 1829, also known as Mumbet. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember the November 15, 1842 rebellion of Joseph Bond's slaves against their Cherokee masters. Our rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Bobby Hines of Detroit. Incarcerated at 15, Hines has had been condemned to life in prison without parole. 28 years later, his release came after the U.S. Supreme Court last year extended a ban on mandatory life without parole for juvenile offenders to those already in prison. Have a question or comment? You can call us toll-free at 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Farthas. What's happening, brother? Scotty Reed. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing a lot better, man. Um, I had a little headache going on. I took a couple of aspirin, and I'm good to go, and I'm just ready to talk about tonight's stories. Um, I also do want to shout out to the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. Uh, I, we are very honored to be the official radio program for the movement, and we will do our very best to represent. Absolutely, brother. I feel the same way. We just had the meeting this past Sunday, uh, the monthly meetings, and uh, we had talked about it previously in uh, another meeting, and uh, Crystal Roundtree announced that they had no problem with that, and uh, it would be a great idea. Uh, I mean, there is nowhere else where where people are focusing on it in a radio program or any media content in the way that we are. This is what we talk about every week in every way you can imagine. And if you come here only for one program, you are going to find out more than you have ever imagined. And we're going to wrap it up in a nice, tight, little, neat bow for you to take home and share with other people. Most certainly, most certainly. And and we've been dutifully uh, doing this program for the past five years and just seeing the change in the public conversation and seeing that that change in the conversation shift from mass incarceration to slavery, from every other name that people want to call it, police and profit, all of that is tied to slavery. And I'm just very happy to see the fruits of that labor um, because all you have to do, you know, uh, a spiritual teaching that I believe in is you sow seeds. Like the story about Johnny Appleseed going around sowing abolitionist seeds. He wasn't, but that's what we're doing. But sowing abolitionist seeds and then seeing how they spring up in different areas. And, you know, I feel like new abolitionists are being born every day in this time period. Yes, indeed, man. And I got to give a shout out to uh, my brother Shaka Tsunami, who is sitting here next to me. Hmm? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> He's here from ITB Global, uh, and uh, he's also an abolitionist, representing an abolitionist organization out of Ohio. It's the our connect in Ohio. And uh, I think we're leaving here tomorrow, right? Yes, sir. This is our last day in South Carolina. <laughs> All right. 
first thing in the morning, it's time to ride. So we'd be heading out Ohio tomorrow, apparently. Well, That's cool, Definitely, man. we want y'all to have safe travels behind these enemy lines. You know, Ohio has been coming up a lot lately. Uh, yes. I have been really researching the 13th Amendment's exception clause. We've been looking for any kind of dialogue about that particular part. And I've read everything from Frederick Douglass's speech in uh, May of 1865 at the American Anti-Slavery Convention where William Lloyd Garrison proposed a dissolving, disbanding the society because of the 13th Amendment. And Frederick Douglass uh, talked about that there, uh, specifically about the 13th Amendment. He didn't mention anything about the exception clause. And then I looked through the debates. I couldn't find anything about the exception clause. And the only thing I remembered is that uh, at one point when Hannah X had approached, uh, what's the author out there of New York Times uh, names? Um, uh, oh, man. About the 13th Amendment. You put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> Sean King. Sean King. Hannah X had approached Sean King. He mentioned some debates going on in the 1860s regarding the, the exception clause, but I have yet to find them. It's as if the word didn't even exist except for in the exception clause. And it was a senator and a congressman from Ohio who brought mm-hmm. it to Lincoln and proposed it to him. One congressman in particular was an abolitionist himself, a white abolitionist working with the Underground Railroad. There's some amazing, interesting stuff I found out and he was the guy to hand it, Lincoln, the 13th Amendment in its entirety as a proposal. Wow. So this abolitionist working on the Underground Railroad had in his hand the very first exception clause, uh, which was the third proposal, actually, but the exception clause with the amendment uh, that says it's set for prisoners duly convicted and never mentioned it at all. You, I couldn't you, find any information on it. Well, you know, Max... Um how I feel about Abraham Lincoln, who I actually was um, posting some information about today when somebody mentioned John Kelly. And I'll bring that up um, later when we get to that story. Uh, But yeah, um, I don't see how you can call yourself a tried and true abolitionist, but yet you support exceptions for slavery. That just does not compute in my mind. You, you either you for or you against it ain't no riding the fence you know what I'm saying so I, I, I just we look at these people with such reverence and I'm not blaming anybody I did not know that the exception clause even existed until going on six years ago because I'll be 51 at the end of this month and I did not know um, and when I did find out, I was I find out I was moved to act. And my first move was to find Max Parthas and and say, "Hey, man, we need to do a radio program telling people about this." Scotty was like, "We need to get these voices out here, brother. We got to get this done." <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, let's do it. Amazing." But yeah, I did like some been doing some intense research on trying to understand how this thing could so easily be passed through. Where even Frederick Douglass acted like it didn't exist, like there was there was no definition of it, there was no debate that I could find about it. And I'm still looking. And then Shock and I were discussing it further, and he came up with the question: Is when did someone start addressing the Thirteenth Amendment and its exception clause in terms of modern day slavery and human trafficking since 1865? Mm-hmm. Uh, any ideas, Scotty Reed? No. Um, other than, I believe, um, 
I actually just read something Huey Newton addressed it, Andrew Davis addressed it, the exception clause. Oh, yeah, so Asada Shakur in her autobiography. What's that? Yes. The 60s and 70s we're talking about, right? Yes. So, so we're then to believe that between 1865 and 1965 that there was nobody who was aware that that thing exists, even during the height of convict lease, leasing. Well, didn't that's, Frederick Douglass uh, say something about it? I, I'm not clear on that. No, he didn't actually address the exception clause. He addressed the amendment itself and found it to be a fraud uh, for a variety of reasons. For instance, he was saying at that uh, meeting that he was at with the anti-slavery society that the amendment would not allow the black man to vote that amendment, the 13th amendment would not allow a black man to testify against a white man in court okay. that amendment would, would not you know, give these things to the black man until these things came along then that amendment was just a gesture and it, if anything, even then as early as 1865 he said that it could lead to uh, us being fooled and uh, a trick played over us where we were put in a worse condition than we were during slavery, which turned out to be true. I don't know if I agree with him on the worse condition. Um, is it more pro prolific? Yes, it's more prolific slavery is in the United States, but I don't know that it was worse. I, I, I just, some more of the- reconstruction. It was it was pretty nasty, Scotty. Remember the Florida stories, for instance. Okay, where they still had the prisoners of uh, slavery there, and they were starving them to death, and all right. kinds of crazy torture. Right, right, Florida. right, right, right. Yeah. You're, you're right, you're right. So, but again, pretty horrific things go on today, man. They really do. They're pretty horrific things go on today. So, um, it's hard to say. You know, sometimes I wish well, I had a time machine. And I could take people back. Digging. Yeah. I, I, I want to know, brother. I really want to know who literally brought this into play. Because, you know, we've traced this here at New Abolitionist Radio all, um, all the way back to 1777. I, I got to say the Black Panther Party is the only, I mean, all the years that I've been studying it, the only people I know were associated with the Black Panther Party. Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, Huey Newton. Mm. Oh, oh, and Lee Wood. Lee Wood, yeah, but again, that's that's like the seventies and sixties, man, and, and right, like there's, there's this whole century missing, where mm -hmm. the thing was happening like perpetually, and somebody had to be aware, and I haven't been able to find that, so I'm I'm really looking for that, and I'm also very curious, and I will find out how it was actually introduced to Lincoln, like what was the proposal, what was the argument that this exception should be in there? I, I want to find the debates on that, even if I have to look through newspapers from the 1860s. I'm going to find that out. I don't think there was much debate because you got to recognize the fact you didn't have anybody like a Frederick Douglass who had been a victim of slavery or even a free black person who had participated in the Underground Railroad. None of them were in on the congressional debates if there was any congressional debates to be had. So I, I don't know that there was much debate. Uh, about it I, I think I don't know you know again we can't go off of movies but I remember a scene from Spielberg's movie Lincoln about how it might have been a few debates or, or what have you but again I'm going to save my commentary on that for when we talk about John Kelly because it's related well let's let's go ahead and get on to that then Scotty I, I don't know if you want to use it or not but 
the other day, one of the first things I heard was on CNN, uh, the talking heads coming on there, and there's one sister, uh, I don't know everybody's name, but uh, she was talking about Lincoln's compromise. And it was over the backdrop of John Kelly uh, talking about how, you know, General, General Lee was an honorable man and how people gave their lives for the state rather than for the nation in that time. And he gave up his nation and talking about, you know, uh, women being treated in, in, with respect like they oh didn't have a problem back man. then. You know, it was just so, this whole lie he was fabricating yeah. out of thin air. That, like that, he'd never read a history book before. And this is the White House chief of staff. Well, that's some real revisionist history right there, man. <laughs> and it's not surprising, though. Now, I don't know, Max, if you would call this cognitive dissonance, but I've been re- I've read two articles no, I was listening to the context of white supremacy. Um, Saturday night, I was listening. They played a clip of this woman t- uh, defending Confederate monuments, saying that, hey, these people that support the Confederate monuments, they weren't taught that, the, that their ancestors were evil. They weren't taught those things, so it's like they don't get it. And I don't know if you call that cognitive dissonance or will just willfully trying to obfuscate the issue. I mean, damn, do do I mean what? Do some if children know that stuff is bad, you know what I'm saying? Children pretty much know right from wrong. Okay? I ain't saying they know it like adults, but they get a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And so for a man of that those years, that just tells me something about his character. Anybody who who looks at these people and and to call a person like that honorable, it's it's just really giving you insight into their psyche. Now, to the backdrop of that, there was a survey that was just done um, where you had members of the military saying that white supremacy uh, uh, have infiltrated the U.S. military and they see that as terrorism and a bigger threat than so-called Islamic terrorism to the country. These are soldiers. These are members of the military who said that. Now, John Kelly is what? An ex-general. There's Exhibit A. I'm sure there's a lot of him like that in there. Max? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, You said you had a video or something? Yes, I have a video that it's just a clip from the news... uh, thing that I heard on CNN yesterday and it includes John Kelly as well as the uh, rhetoric that was proposed there by the CNN talking head. Anyway, it's called Lincoln's Compromise. It's on the planning page as well as on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook and it's just a few minutes long. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find it. Want to talk about. I'm trying to find it in a group so I better go to Facebook since you just posted it there because them, them threads be pretty long, boy. Max, like Max has said in the past, y'all don't know how many stories we leave on the cutting room floor. So that's why you should become a member of BTR community. Right, right. It's about three posts down under the Lincoln stuff that we was talking about. So you'll, you'll see it on Facebook as well. And uh, just for, you know, listeners right now, we highly, highly suggest that you become a member of the community. Um, the community.blacktalkradionetwork.com and you can follow all of these things that we often never get a chance to share with people but it's news uh, worthy of respect in any case 
help support an institution and become a member of the Black Talk Radio Network community. It's $24 a year. And for that $24 a year, uh, you'll get all the things that we can possibly offer, the bells and whistles of a social network, and you'll never see a day in Facebook jail. It just don't exist at the Black Talk Radio Network community. Yeah, I'm still having a little trouble finding it, Max. I'm on New Abolitionist Radio. Is it near the top? Uh, Lincoln's Can Promise. I found it. I found it. I found it. Lincoln's Can Promise. All right, there you go. All right. Compromise, it, yes. Here we go. Should be starting shortly. Here we go. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly is not one to seek the spotlight, but that is where he is today, after offering his thoughts on the Civil War and how it could have been avoided. Kelly was speaking to Fox News after being asked about a Virginia church's decision to relocate plaques honoring Robert E. Lee and George Washington. Here's what he said. I will tell you that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. Uh, he was a man that uh, gave up uh, gave up his country to fight for his state, which in 150 years ago was more important than country. It was always loyalty to state first back in those days. Uh, now we're, it's different today. Uh, but the, the, the lack of an ability to compromise uh, led to the Civil War. And uh, men and women of good faith on both sides made their stand where their conscience uh, had them make their stand. All right, joining me right now, CNN political reporter, senior political reporter, Neil Malika Henderson, and CNN political director, David Chalian. So, David, what is John Kelly doing here? Why is he taking questions about this? I mean, I, I, we've seen him in the briefing room. If he doesn't want to take a question, he won't take it. Yeah, it's a little perplexing why he would want to delve into uh, Civil War history and to do so incorrectly. Uh, you know, I, I think that the uh, the question is from what compromise is he talking about between uh, slavery and freedom? It's unclear to me uh, what what the compromise is there, but but I do think that this also just raises the larger issue, Kate, which is that uh, John Kelly is very at home in the Trump White House and. Uh, and I think we're seeing that more and more over the last couple of weeks as he sort of delves into some uh, more controversial issues. Uh, he seems almost sort of Trumpian in his, in his responses. Oh, and I actually do want to get to that in a second. But Nia, on this very point, as David is saying, we're all aware that there were attempts at compromise before the outbreak of the Civil War, but sitting here in 2017, is it clear what compromise John Kelly thinks the North should have accepted? I actually can't even believe I had to ask that question. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm never surprised to hear John Kelly uh, say this. I grew up in the South, uh, and so this is kind of a talking point uh, you often hear from uh, people of a certain age, people uh, of a certain race. That is never fact. good when you start an answer with people of a certain age. Even if you look, I mean, you go and you look back at uh, the Civil War documentary, which I encourage right. John Kelly to look at. Uh, Shelby Foote, who's a Southern historian who wrote uh, multiple volumes uh, on the Civil War, uh, said almost those exact words, uh, that it was 
the lack of an ability to compromise. But sort of the fuller context, of course, is compromise over slavery. How do you compromise over slavery, as David said? And if you look at what Lincoln was trying to do, he was, in fact, trying to compromise over slavery. And the South didn't want to compromise over slavery because it was so key to their identity, so key to the economy, so key to the identity of white Southern Christians. And so that is what's going on here. You know, I do think it reflects that the South obviously lost the war, but they sort of in some ways won the narrative battle and kind of the memory of the Civil War. And I think that's what he's speaking to, this idea that Robert E. Lee, who thought that black people basically benefited from slavery. I mean, that was Robert E. Lee's philosophy, right, that slavery was good for black people because they needed to be civilized. He actually thought slavery was bad for white people because they were the ones who had to enslave black people to do them some good. So, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing about I think that is also troubling about Kelly is that he does tend to look at the past through these rose-colored glasses, right? And he talked about women being honored in the past and seen in a respectful way. I mean, if you think that women being treated as second-class citizens is honoring them, I mean, that was what the past was. And he also seems to be impervious to new information, right? I mean, if you look at the Frederica Wilson controversy, right, he had the story completely wrong. The truth of what she said came out, and he still refused to apologize, refused to change his approach to that story. So, you know, you would hope that John Kelly will read about the Civil War. I mean, it's probably the most covered war and period of history in American history. I mean, multiple volumes, hundreds of thousands of books have written on that period. So you would hope he would read a little bit more and kind of broaden his idea of what that war was actually about. Well, there you go, Scotty. Well, let's just, I want to address his comments, not so much what their comments. I want to address his. All right, so we heard what he said, right? There's a bunch of racist dog whistles. Okay, that's the Southern strategy right there. What we heard when we, when we, what was some of the, um, man, let me go back. Um, I should have pulled it up, man. I'm trying not to do too much so I don't lock up my screen. But I heard a bunch of dog whistles there. And when, this is a man who took an oath to the United States, took the same oath I took when I joined the military, and for him, states' rights, that's the word I was looking for. We hear that today, states' rights. So that was just red meat for the racists that turned out to Charlottesville and the terrorists, you know, that, that killed that woman, Heather uh, Hare, and those other people. All right, states' rights, what state rights? The right to practice slavery is what they were fighting for. That's why they broke away. Now, in terms of Lincoln, uh, trying to compromise he tried to compromise and this is what I told someone today where this person was trying to say that hey all of this liberal outrage towards John Kelly and about compromise and all this and that and I was like you know in a way John Kelly is right people did not want to compromise see Lincoln had wrote letters to uh, what was it uh, Stevens is his last name we, we Alexander Stevens Say that again, Alexander. Justice Stevens, yes. Yes, wrote the letter saying, you know, do you think that we plan to interfere with you and your property? Please tell your fellow, fellow and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Please tell your fellow slavers that we don't plan to, to do anything to interfere 
with the institution of we just don't want it to expand to the new territories where we robbing Native Americans of their land, okay? Um, so he tried everything he could do to prevent the war and keep the union together. So John Kelly, he sound like an insurrectionist today. He sound just like one of them Southerners, right? Okay, so it, what? It, I don't know what his home state is, but remember we heard that talk about uh, certain Southern states in the past few years talking about succeeding, succeeding from the state, secession, um, during the Obama years, that, that was big talk. So what, John Kelly, you know, what what would you do? Would, would you recommend the U.S. military soldiers uh, betray their oath to the United States and join in with their states? I mean, this dude is trying to make something that is dishonorable, honorable. And I'm just not, I'm not falling for it. And the greatest, even after the Civil War, even after the Civil War, the great compromise, Lincoln if he had acted like normal people act during war when you're dealing with traitors, every last single one of those Confederate generals and officers, every single member of the short-lived Confederate Congress would have been shot or hanged for treason. Okay, that's what should have happened. But he was always trying to appease those slavers because he said in his own words, I don't care if slavery remains or if it's to go as long as the union stays together. So again, he's a very wishy. I don't even want to call the man an abolitionist. Okay, very. I think he was a double talking politician who saw opportunity to become of the nominee for the Republican Party, which is first nominee. And he just told abolitionists what they wanted to hear. And his real thoughts came through to his through his letters to these Southerners. So I'm gonna stop there, Max. You you touched on a lot of subjects, right? I know. Uh, no, I said I know. That's why I want to oh, yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah you t- touched on a lot of subjects. Um, I'll, I'll touch on a couple as well. Uh, and one, uh, starting with his own statements, as you said, he's now romanticizing. He's re- a revisionist. You know, he's just making things up out of thin air in order to justify what they're 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 involved in, right there. And that was a prediction that was made by Frederick Douglass in his denouncement of the emancipation in 1888. Where he said, "The love of power, common to the white race, has been nursed and strengthened at the South by slavery." accustomed during 200 years to the unlimited possession and exercise of irresistible power, the love of it has become stronger by habit. To assume that this feeling of pride and power has died out and disappeared from the South is to assume a miracle. Any man tells you that he has died out or has ceased to be exercised and made ineffective tells you that which is untrue and in the nature of things could not be true. Not only is the love of power there, but a talent for its exercise has been fully developed. This talent makes the old master class of the South not only the masters of the Negro, but the masters of Congress, and if not checked, will make them the masters of this nation. I denounce this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud by Frederick Douglass, 1888. So he warned of it right there, you know. And you got to remember also the period, how those people thought at that time during 
the 13th Amendment's presentation initially, because it went through three stages. You know, there was three different 13th Amendments. The first one was about not having any titles of nobility. The second one was the Corwin uh, uh, Agreement, in which slavery would never be abolished. Like, you couldn't even try to abolish it. It was forbidden by the Constitution. And then the final one, which is what we see now, which is uh, kind of like the 1777 uh, Vermont State Constitution with the Exception Clause. But let me read some of the words of the people of the time and how they felt about it. And you'll see that's how they feel right now. Like everything they're doing is right. Right, right, right. Max. I was going to just. say before you read that, uh, when you said that, I was thinking, because that's something they, they try to use to justify slavery um, while it not acknowledging that it still exists is that, oh, that was a different time period then. And, and so we had to view it through that lens and what have you as to justify slavery as, oh, it, it was okay back then. It was normal. Uh, nothing was wrong with it. Well, that's a doggone lie because there has always been an abolitionist movement for as long as there's been slavery. So everybody was not down with it and okay with it. But here's the sentiments of the people who were okay with it. And I found this in some research from Harper's Weekly, May 23rd, 1864. And it was after the debate about the 13th Amendment. Of the six senators who voted against the resolution, four made brief speeches. Mr. Powell of Kentucky said if, it, if there had been no abolitionists, there would have been no rebellion. An inanity too incredible. Mr. Salisbury of Delaware proposed to secure liberty of speech and of the press and reestablish the principles of the Missouri Compromise, which was a proposition to feed a fire with water. For how can slavery and free speech coexist? Mr. Davis of Kentucky declared that the constitutional abolition of slavery, a wicked and unjust act against which he was aware the protest of an angel would be of no avail forgetting that the only angel who would have wished to protest was named Lucifer and fell from heaven. Mr. McDougall of California announced that he was devoted to human freedom and therefore, as a true friend of man, should vote in favor of slavery. Now, this was the sentiments of sitting politicians at the time about slavery. They were often portraying it as a loss to the uh, master race, so they were saying, you're impugning on my rights to own property. Never once mentioning that the truth of the matter is they were taking the rights away from the people who had been enslaved. That wasn't the point for them. It was always about what they were losing and not the human cost that was being enacted. That was negligible to them. Right, right. You know, I read a blog post today. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name if you're listening. Um, but some someone I'm you know in my social network um, made a blog post, very first blog post um, for their blog site, and it was about racism and white supremacy. So I go read the blog, and it was a pretty well written blog for his. You know, he he was trying to play it down like you know, hey, hey, I need a lot of work, and hey, we all need improvement. But I thought it was pretty good. But it was just one thing that I pointed out to him that I took issue uh, took issue with not in a negative sense of the word, but was pointing out to him that slavery, that white supremacy, because he compared white supremacy to slavery. He said white supremacy is slavery. And no, slavery was here first. 
And I pointed out to him that white supremacy was not codified in law until the passage of the Virginia Slave Codes, which in addition to regulating the movements of enslaved victims, but also stripped free black colonists of their rights to defend themselves, of their rights to bear arms, all, all of their civil rights. That was the beginning of the, the what would we call it, uh, institutionalization of white supremacy in law. In law, that was the beginning, and it was done to maintain slavery, not the other way around. So I, I just got to point point that out. Um, also, again, another thing with uh, with John Kelly, um, he's just an old curmudgeon, man, just a gnarly old old man, and he we we just see that Trump attracts these type type of people. Not to say that any previous administrations were any better on the issue of slavery, but this administration has gone all out in supporting modern day slavery. You mentioned the GEO group and, and we'll be talking about them later, but I read in an article two days ago that the GEO group had had moved this conference from wherever they were booked at to a Trump hotel. And I, oh, I, where was the hotel at? Was it in Virginia or was it in Maryland? I, I can't remember where their conference going to be, but they moved it to a Trump hotel. Remember, they poured billions of dollars, and some people say illegally, to into uh, into a super PAC to elect Donald Trump because he was very upfront with his support of slavery. Yeah, just think of this as coming from the chief of staff of the White House. And to not think that this would not reflect in his counterparts in the Congress, in the governorships, and in the Senate. Like, you don't think, you think they're smarter than him? Like, they know more than him? They're all in agreement, a lot of these, particularly in the Republican parties. They don't have knowledge. What they have is tradition. They just believe things because that's what they've always been told. Mm -hmm. And they apparently haven't read a book since grammar school. Um, I'll tell you something else he hasn't read, like man. Another thing and, he hasn't read is the writings of a descendant of General Lee, um, who is a counter-racist, uh, who his name, it, it, well, he ha he shares the same name. I think he's the sixth or the fifth or something like that, uh, Robert E. Lee, the, whatever. Anyway, he talked about why these monuments should be removed because, again, Kelly is saying all these things in defense of monuments being removed from the public square. Okay. So even General Lee, as was pointed out today by a panel member on Tanya Free and Friends, even General Lee said after the war was over, not to be flying them, them Confederate flags, not to, to put all that stuff away. Okay, not to be trying to memorialize all, all of this. So they even going against what General Lee said himself. Literally. Just making it up out of thin air and then want to argue with somebody about it. And then the press secretary also uh, carried on even further. And, uh, you know, just... There's a few stories on, you can look on the news and hear the whole Ooh, Chuckles. Rhetoric. Everybody was up. Hmm? Chuckles, you talking about Chuckles? 
Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I try not to get too caught up in these thrones because I recognize these uh, powers and principalities that we're dealing with and what they really represent. It's a whole lot of evil going on here. And we make the mistake sometimes, Scotty, of thinking that every monster looks like Godzilla. Like a monster can't be the most beautiful, handsome person, charming person you know. Like the same guy who ain't who's in prison as a guard working $8, $12 an hour and in his free time is beating people up or running fight clubs, doesn't go home and hug his wife or, or give his children Christmas presents. You know what I mean? Like he's got to look like a monster because he's doing monstrous things and that's just not the case. People like Abraham Lincoln were monsters. People like Thomas Jefferson were monsters. Yes, there was some beautiful, genius, wonderful things that went on in their lives, but that goes on in everybody has moments like that. Everybody has these types of, of lovely things that we can do and, and beautiful and gracious things, but not everybody is capable of the levels of evil that these men have went through. I mean, literally, Thomas Jefferson was one of the, wasn't he one, one of the first people to talk about people as Capital. A commodity, uh, as capital, a stock, capital, capital as capital, right? You're mm-hmm. talking about Thomas Jefferson. He was <laughs> and he's bragging. the guy saying freedom, freedom. Yeah, he was bragging to his his fellow slavers that every time um, a victim of slavery was born on his plantation, how that increased his capital, his wealth. And so, so you know, there has always been a direct connection or correlation between slavery and capitalism of the West. It just, it, 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 and that's, and between it, sociopathy. Yeah. Because it takes sociopaths to do this. And by nature, sociopaths seek the highest forms of power. So don't be surprised that you we had more than a few presidents who were sociopaths, like the one we have right now is a sociopath. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't know what a sociopath is, look it up. Uh, as a matter of fact, the corporation, since uh, the advent of the uh, what is it called? We're now with a corporation's personhood. The uh, mm-hmm. oh my God, Scotty, I'm having a difficult um, day in brain parts. You're you're talking about? I know what what you're talking about. The un- oh yeah, uh, Mitt Romney talked that about that. Mitt Romney said corporations are people too. And well, it's actually legal by the Supreme Court yeah, now. Yeah, because of um, free speech, they're saying money is free speech, and corporations have a right to free speech, like yes, they're covered yes. by the First Amendment. And, and so they could, you know, but look, me and you as citizens don't have the right to pour unlimited amounts of money into an election. We're limited uh, how much we can give an individual candidate. But with these super PACs, you can give an unlimited amount. So it, that, that was just the end around the law, or so to speak. But uh, again, man, these people uh, uh, to say Citizens United, Scotty. Citizens uh, United. That's that. correct. Yes, it is. Yes, yes that's correct. Hey, Max, there's one thing I wanted to say on air to to issue a correction to some information that I that I've said that wasn't correct. And somebody made me aware of it. So I, I want to acknowledge that okay. um, I had heard somebody mention and I might have misheard them, but they said that Lincoln um, did pay the slavers for the loss of their property. And I'm like, no, no, that's yes. not right. That's not right. I said the 14th Amendment specifically forbid, forbade that. But somebody, Chris, uh, Chris Adair, I believe is his name, he shared with me via private message a document about Lincoln uh, approving to compensate 
the slavers in Washington, D.C., and they did. They paid them, man. They paid them. And I had just posted a quote from Lincoln the week of, uh, uh, the week prior where he was saying, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but he was like expressing doubt of whether or not he wanted to do it. So Lincoln did compensate some slavers for the emancipation of their victims, but that was limited to Washington, D.C. only. Man, speaking of compensation, you want to talk about that GEO Group's uh, statement about how much money they're making and where their dollars are coming from these days and why they're so happy. And for those that don't know, GEO Group is an international corporation uh, that specializes in providing prison services and buildings and facilities and training and so on and so forth. They've even managed uh, bases like Guantanamo Bay, the Palestinians in Israel, and to the best of my knowledge, they have a contract right now with the nation of Australia providing all uh, services for all of their prisons across Australia. They're huge. They have a base in Florida, and their CEO is by the name of George Zoli. If there were ever a modern-day slaver baron George Zoli would be uh, one of those people who need to have a wanted ad made up for them. I did make a wanted ad for him. Yes, you did. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm referring to, yo. Wanted. (laughs) Well, apparently they are happy and pleased with the way things are going under the Trump administration. They said corporate leaders at the Florida-based private prison operator GO Group are very pleased with his third quarter, quarter earnings report released Tuesday on a call with investors. Geo Group's CEO, George Zoli, expressed optimism for profits, largely driven by current contracts with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE Agency. We are very pleased with our strong quarterly results and outlook for the balance of the year, Zoli said on an investor call, explaining that the third quarter experienced improved occupancy rates across a number of our ICE facilities. I mean, they say it, Scotty, they say it so surgically, like, you know, it just don't matter experienced improved occupancy rates across a number of our ICE facilities. Like, you should just be saying we shoved more bodies in those buildings and it made us more money. Mm-hmm. Out of the 96,000 beds within its private corrections and detention facilities worldwide, Zoli said the company had 5,000 vacant beds at five idle facilities and 2,000 underutilized beds across a number of active active facilities at the end of the third quarter. He did not specify whether those vacant beds were located in the immigration detention centers or in prisons. We continue to actively market this available bed capacity and believe that there are a number of opportunities to deploy these assets. Mm-mm-mm. Zoli said, explaining those extra 7,000 available beds could generate between 50 million and 60 million in revenue if they're fully utilized. As reflected by earning call slides, the ICE agency is GEO Group's number one customer. GEO's 2017 year-to-date data showed that ICE uses 16% of the GEO's bed spaces and comprises 18.7% of GEO's revenue. And when you're saying ICE, you're talking about the U.S. government. That's a contract with the U.S. government. In any case, in comparison, the Federal Bureau of Prisons the numbers, the company's number two customer uses 14.3% of GEO's bed space. 
So we're talking about almost 20% and then uh, 14%. So we're talking about 34 to 35% of their contracts is directly directly related to this administration. Yeah, so, the federal uh, I'll put government. That up on New Abolitionist Radio. You can read about it in full detail. It's a lot more to it. Yes, and they also have contracts with individual states as well. But like you correctly mentioned, um, we reported when it happened they took over the entire prison system of Australia. So when we tell you that this is a slavery is an international issue, it is most certainly an international issue because these are, are, are companies that are operating internationally. Okay. And, and so I don't, if you live in the United States or if you live outside the United States, you should become an abolitionist because they might be coming to your town soon no matter where you are, okay? I see, right. again, like we pointed out, Max, the largest employer in Africa is who? And they do what? G4S, which is a prisons and securities company. Okay. Largest empl- private employer five years straight. Now the I, entire continent of Africa. Now, I saw that, and let me ask you this question. Cause I normally I have like I've had these out for years since we started doing new abolitionist radio. I've had alerts out for when they do these calls because it will be made public. Unless I've been missing the emails, I don't recall getting any heads up about the calls. Have you? Yes, but unfortunately, uh, over the years that we have been doing it, it was usually Johanan that would make sure they would collect that up and cover it every month uh, that it, or every three months that it was coming out. So I don't think either one of us has taken up that uh, like like he was doing it. Although that may change in the future, Scotty, because what we discussed recently about a, another potential host on behalf of the Millions of Prisoners Coalition, uh, we've had that conversation now with Darren, and they're working it out, and that may be coming into fruition. I don't want to say too much just yet, Scott. Okay, I understand. To the audience, but you know where I'm coming from, right? Right, but so I did not I did not know this, um, that they had this call, because normally we would be calling in, and we yes. would try to ask questions, but they would never take our calls. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is some of those calls, and we did record those calls and publish them, and I'm sure they're aware that we was doing that, and we would hear like little small what you might call mom and pop companies that was on these calls invested in modern day slavery so I'm reading here um, about this one call this one company that was part of the call let me back up I'm trying to find it right quick but they are talking about okay let me see the company is currently in the process of developing a 1000 bed ice processing center in Houston Texas under a 10 year contract J. David David Donahue senior vice president and president of US corrections and detention and international operation again I just told y'all slavery is still international it's still international y'all and he said on the same call uh, the facility, which is set to open in late 2018, costs $125 million to build and is expected to pull in $44 million annually in revenue. Okay. They just they just bet they just put down $125 million on slavery. 
they they are so sure that they're going to fill them prison because they're probably going to have a 95% occupancy rate from the government like they got with Louisiana. I think that's core civic with the contract with Louisiana. But Most I of think, the think contracts about contracts are 80 to 100% guaranteed occupancy for 20 to 25 years. Uh, now, I think it's CCA that has guaranteed 100% occupancy in Arizona in at least three prisons. So they are investing a lot of money, people, in your enslavement. What are we going to do about it? Is it time to end this? Yes. Way past time to end this, Scotty. And you know, while we're doing the fight, which should be done now, like every day we should be finished. This should be it. It should be done. That's how I feel about it. But every day that we fight, we're losing more people, more brutality is occurring, more horrors and more atrocities are occurring. Because this is all at a human cost. As I expressed earlier, when they talked about the losses, they talked about the losses to slavers. The slavers got paid for what they lost. Nobody really cared about the human loss. And that's the way it's going right now, particularly here uh, in South Carolina. And considering this is my last day here as a resident, uh, let me share this information regarding the ongoing human rights crisis happening here in the South Carolina prisons. I've been getting reports now for months from friends of ours and abolitionists who's been telling us of how they've been treating these prisoners in there. Everything from one man getting 36 years in solitary confinement for 36 Facebook posts. Think about that. 36 years in solitary confinement for 36 Facebook posts to them painting all the windows green and putting nets over the outside area so the men can't even look up at the sun clearly uh, during the day, like literally locking them in their cells 24 hours a day. And this article is coming from Shadowproof, and it's journalist Jared Ware. He interviewed people incarcerated at McCormick's Correctional Institution in South Carolina regarding the ongoing crisis, therefore a special edition of Beyond Prisons, and I want to read some of it. It says, McCormick has been on lockdown for weeks. At the end of September, incarcerated people reported officials there withholding drinking water and engaging in excessive force after a water main broke outside the facility. For three days, people on the inside reported they did not have drinkable water. This caused tensions in the facility to, to boil over into multiple incidents, which were met with more repression by prison staff. Incarcerated people feel staff are intentionally trying to provoke them just to justify worsening brutality and repressive conditions. One man was reportedly shot with rubber bullets multiple times after leaving the shower. He has been transferred to another facility after he was taken after he was taken to prisons to the prison's medical center. On Monday, October 30, advocates report people had briefly taken over the restrictive housing unit and set fires before returning to their cells. Few news outlets have covered the crisis from the perspective of the people on the inside, instead relying exclusively on reports from correctional officials who claim the violence was a product of unruly prisoners and staff shortages. This claim has been used to justify the lockdown as well as the presence of riot squads and officers from nearby prisons. Prison staff were said to be violating multiple department policies. Under the lockdown, people are being held in their cells 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
They say medical attention is being denied, which has been particularly dangerous for those with diabetes. The prison is not providing adequate meals and unpalatable food is being served with guns drawn and pointed in the direction of each cell they open to pass the food. To add another degree of psychological torture, steel plates are being used to cover all windows. Members of jailhouse lawyers speak reported on Twitter, natural sunlight is being eliminated in the cells at McCormick prison. Incarcerated people are reporting the facility is only allowing one cell at a time to bathe, limited showers to once a week, Hygiene project products have not been delivered to cells. Living conditions are becoming increasingly unsanitary as well as cells and showers have not been cleaned. Another prison in the South Carolina system, Broad River Correctional Institution, is reportedly on lockdown as well. Advocates are asked, asking the public to call the following officials on behalf of those incarcerated at McCormick. That will be South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, SLED, 803-737-9000. Assistant Attorney General John M. Gore, Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, 202-514-4609. South Carolina Senator Carl Allen, Corrections and Penology Oversight Subcommittee Member, 602 Grissette Boulevard, Columbia 29201. Business phone 803-212-6008. And finally, SDDC, Office of the Director, Brian P. Sterling, 803-896-8555. They are requesting a formal investigation related to water rationing and the use of excessive force at the facility. Incarcerated people are also asking for normal operations to resume without delay and for inhumane living conditions to be rectified immediately. And you can read the rest of that again at New Abolitionist Radio or at the Black Talk Radio Network community, community community.blacktalkradionetwork. Please make those calls because if you don't, nobody will. If If you're able, do it. If you're able, do it. Right, it's amazing. Like, but again, when when you mention call the civil rights division, the first thing that came to my mind is slaves don't have civil rights. That's the reality of of the situation. That's how they will respond. Slaves don't. That's why they. That's why the the Justice Department Civil Rights Division is not constantly investigating these prisons and busting them for the violations of these people's civil rights under the constitution let alone the international human rights treaties that they have signed because you know why because they slaves that's how they look at them that's what they are legally I'm not calling them slaves they're victims of slavery but I'm speaking from the perspective property of the state exactly property don't have rights so I, I just I, when you said call the civil rights division, that's the first thing that came to my mind. So I'm just being brutally honest here, so people will recognize the situation that that is going on. It's slavery. It's not mass incarceration. It's not over policing. It's none of that. It's slavery. Slavery. What has slavery always been about? For profit. That's what we're dealing with, people. And if you if you don't stand up for 
those and and not that the people in prison haven't been standing up because they have you've heard from over the years some of the uh, prisoners call into this show and what have you so they are standing up but they need us they need us so if you was one of those people that was like you know if I'd have been born in the 1860s I I definitely would have been an abolitionist I'd have been working on the underground railroad I would have signed up for the civil war to free these people. Well, you you in the same circumstances right now. What are we going to do, people? We need to end slavery. So please, please become involved. Yes. Um, what we're going to do at this point is we'll take our station identification break. And when we come back on the other side, I want to talk about debtors' prisons that are filling up, they say in this article, in the Deep South. But I know that it's happening everywhere across America. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network.com, the official uh, program for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. We'll be right back after these messages. podcasts and live program scheduling visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com welcome back to new abolitionist radio I'd like to open up the call lines too before we get into our story too deeply on the, the next story at least if you have a question or a comment uh just press star star if you're in the room there and unmute yourself and uh state your name where you're calling from and what your question or comment is Yeah, we all right. Yeah. Okay then. Um, so what I'll do is I'll start on our story, and uh, if you have something you'd like to say, just unmute yourself uh, after I finish with the story, and we can share your comments. This comes from Workers.org, and it's published October twenty eighth, two thousand and fifteen. two years ago. It's nothing new. This has been taking some time. Debtors fill it, prisons fill up in deep south. Across the U.S., local jails have turned into debtors' prisons. As cities and counties imprison poor people who can't pay fines for traffic violations, minor offenses, or court costs. Nowhere is this more dramatic than in the Deep South, where imprisoned people are disproportionately young black people, immigrants, people of color, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer people. Uh, in Alabama, Perry County Circuit Judge Marvin Wiggins told a courtroom full of people at an unpaid fines hearing on September 17th, if you do not have any money and don't want to go to jail, consider giving blood today and bring your receipt back, or the sheriff has enough handcuffs for those who do not have money. That came from the Equal Justice Initiative, and we reported on it when it occurred here at New Abolitionist Radio, where the judge literally said, sell blood and give us the money. Deborah Shoemaker Ford from Shelby County was jailed there for seven weeks with no court hearing. Her crime? She had not paid the monthly fees charged by a private probation company, Judicial Correction Services, JCS. The company based in Georgia had provided her bail for a traffic violation from the marshproject.org. <coughs> Excuse me. The Chilton County retired uh, ill steelworker Richard 
Garrett was jailed for two years and owed $10,000 simply for traffic and license violations, plus fees and fines accrued over 10 years. New York Times, July 2nd, 2012. Jailing someone for debt who is too poor to pay is a civil rights violation under the 1966 UN International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It is also illegal under the 1982 U.S. Supreme Court ruling Bearden versus Georgia. But though debtors' prisons are not allowed de jure by law, they are on the rise de facto as part of a prisons-for-profit boom of the last 20 years. Offender-funded initiatives throughout the U.S. justice system have shifted much of the costs for the system to the prisoners themselves. Economically squeezed cities and counties has have actively adopted this approach to add to their revenue stream. Local governments also augment revenue by contracting with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to arrest and jail undocumented immigrants in order to fulfill quotas to keep beds filled at for-profit detention centers run by corporate giants like Corrections Corporations of America, formerly known as, now known as CoreCivic, and Geo Group. Incarcerated immigrants then incur costs in the local fee stream. Predatory companies like Judicial Correction Services are contracted by local cities and counties to collect fines, restitution, and fees from convicted or incarcerated people, boasting they are saving taxpayers' dollars. The profit-driven companies hound poor people for all kinds of fees, including jail, booking, public defender application, drug testing, DNA testing, drug rehab, electronic monitoring, as well as jail per diems for pretrial detention, court costs, and more. The private companies charge the local governments nothing. They make their profits by adding extra fees to court defendants' bills. The companies are bill collectors with the power to decide if someone goes to jail for not paying. Poor defendants have the right to legal counsel in criminal cases, but not in civil cases such as indebtedness. That leaves poor defendants at the mercy of profit-hungry companies like JCS. You can read the rest of this story at New Abolitionist Radio. I think we covered the gist of what's happening right here. And again, this is from 2015. Since then... We have seen some wins come into play, like uh, a fight against JCS in Alabama, forcing them out of the entire state under RICO charges. And and we first proposed that. I was just thinking America is Ferguson, the the series that we did on the report, um, based off of the report that came out of Ferguson after the murder of Michael Brown by Darren Wilson. And the FBI went in there, the Department of Justice, and they produced this report. And they mentioned federal laws had been violated. But no, there was no prosecution. So me, you, and Johanna was was kicking that back and forth and, and breaking it down. And I, and, and I was like, the only thing I could think of is RICO charges. And then so when you look at, look up RICO charges, that does apply and can be applied. And, you know, we we are not attorneys. We also don't have the funds to have attorneys on retainer to fight these sort of cases. But um, I think, who was it? The, was it the Southern Poverty Law Center that, that sued them under RICO and won? 
I believe it was the Southern. Uh, I'm reading it right here. It says last January the ACLU filed a similar suit in Georgia against DeKalb County and rapidly reached settlement in March, achieving limited systemic reform. Under this pressure, the day after the ACLU suit was filed in Mississippi, the JCS announced it was ceasing business in Alabama. Okay, so but I do believe the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's neither here or there. But this, what we were theorizing as a way to attack it, attack this element of slavery, it's been proven. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, NAACP Legal Defense Fund. You get a lot of money from black folks, and they are the primary victims of slavery in this country. You, you have a, a separate from the other NAACP. You, that's a total separate entity, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Why aren't you filing these suits all over the country on behalf of the victims of modern-day slavery? That, that's a question. That's not a criticism. That's a question. Because we just told you that these other groups had success in shutting down this Bell's Bondsman uh, uh, company. So I, I, I'm just saying, man, I'm, I'm just, I want slavery to be over yesterday. And if I had, if I was to hit the lottery and, and won $500 million, you better believe I would be going after these people in the courts. Yes, sir, Scotty. <laughs> we were talking about that today uh, here with Shaka and Tribal and uh, just some ideas that we could use to make these things happen. Uh, one of those I mentioned earlier is a very simple one. Uh, we are developing here an institution called community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. We want you to join it. It's $24 a year. That money is going to help fund a lot of efforts that are happening. Like uh, we're in the midst now of beginning the initial stages of forming our committees in order to address the individual exception clauses in state constitutions. And simultaneously, in California, there's a group called Initiate Justice, which is uh, attempting to allow the prisoners within the prisons to be able to vote. So they're having a voting drive for those prisoners and getting petitions together, to, you know, because Jerry Brown now is allowing them to vote, to be able to make that happen. So it's potential that we could be using prisoners' votes in order to overturn these exception clauses in state constitutions. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful thing that's happening like real stuff that's happening in the streets and uh, behind the lines. But Scotty, I want to play one more video before the evening uh, was over and we got into our regular segments. Mm -hmm. And that's the uh, rampant constitutional violations at our everyday life video. I'm going to put it on New Abolitionist Radio so it'll be the first thing you see when you go over there. Just give me a second here. Okay. And it's a clip that was suggested to me uh, to watch from Otis Griffin. So I watched the whole clip, I, uh, the whole thing. I pulled this part out. I figured that we could talk about this. Um, this is, let me read the introduction here. This is a clip from On Contact with Chris Hedges, uh, Alex Vital, author of The End of Policing and Professor of Sociology and Coordinator of the Police and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College discusses the origins of modern policing and how to prevent law enforcement from stripping away citizens' rights. So uh, if you're ready for it, you can go ahead and play. Programs that allow police to expropriate property and money and what that has done to 
police departments. Well, this is just one of the forms of corruption that emerges from some of the functional roles that police have been given in this era. So that most importantly, the war on drugs has radically expanded police power. It has eroded the Fourth Amendment and the asset forfeiture laws that were created as part of the war on drugs. Explain how those work, because you don't even have to be convicted of a crime. No, only your money does. (laughs) And the standards are civil standards, not criminal standards, which means that it only requires a preponderance of the evidence rather than guilt beyond reasonable doubt. In the book, you talk about how these police forces would go out, I think you call them fishing Absolutely. The way the asset forfeiture laws are generally structured is police get to keep all or a significant share of the money, and they have created their own internal... Well, and the vehicles, and, a, a, you and know... houses, right. and anything else they find. But what they really and, want... And let's be clear, what, what they're doing is targeting someone who they think is dealing in drugs well, without... No, no, I don't even think they necessarily think that. They're, they're, the targeting is so much vaguer than that. Mm. And in some cases, there's evidence of targeting people just because they think they have money on them. So they're making stops and, cl- and claiming that, based on their own internal decision-making, that, well, anyone who's carrying more than $500 must be up to no good. Because what law-abiding person would be carrying $1,000 with them? The fact that that person is on the way to the doctor's office to pay a bill or has just come from a check-cashing place is not of interest to them. If they're suspicious of that person, they make a confiscation right on the spot, and then you have to prove that your money is not guilty after the fact. Which most people can't do. Many people certainly can't do that. They don't have the financial proof that the money has been garnered in a particular way. And, you know, there are large segments of the economy now that operate on a cash basis. And those people now are at risk from this kind of predatory policing. Well, you see it with the fines in places like St. Louis and Ferguson. That's another example. And across large parts of the South, it's especially common in rural areas as State funding for local places has declined as part of austerity politics. Local areas are trying to make up that money through fees and fines. Which are get ridiculous. Like you can't stand more than three minutes on a street. You know, you didn't mow your lawn. You... Right. Not only are the laws ridiculous, but the patterns of enforcement are ridiculous. And then the fact that judges go along with this is a further outrage. And in some cases, it's resulted in debtors' prisons where people who can't pay the fines are coerced into getting money from friends and family, not just to bail themselves out, but to come up with a deal on all the fine money, and they can't get out of jail until they pay it. You are quite critical of what's called the broken windows policing policy. Explain what it is and why. So a lot of what's happening in terms of the over-policing of communities of color is not about arresting homicidal maniacs or rapists. It's about the constant, invasive, harassing, low-level for enforcement of very minor violations of the law. this is Garner selling loose, loose cigarettes. cigarettes. Which shouldn't even be a police matter. But... The mayor of New York, like many politicians across the country, is committed to this idea that if they aggressively micromanage the public behavior of poor people, that that will lead to public safety, a revitalization of neighborhoods, etc. 
but the whole precept behind it is fundamentally racist. We know that the architects of this theory were of a mind that poor people are, by their nature, incapable of regulating their own behavior, and it's only a coercive state that will force them to do the right thing. You, yeah, you say it's essentially it shifts the burden of responsibility for declining living conditions onto the poor themselves. It was revolutionary. They took what was a very well understood idea that poverty and social dislocation leads to crime and instead say, uh, said that it's disorder that produces crime. There you go, Scotty. Uh, we do have a phone call before I uh, comment on what we just heard. Oh, okay. Um, I, I guess uh, they had just came in and the system was slow and muting them. But anybody that has a question or a comment, um, the telephone number is 866-510-9025. Hit star star. We'll see you come unmuted and we'll get your question or your comment. I'm going to just say this about that. I agree with everything that was said. But today on social media, people were, which people tend to do, it's nothing new, bad-mouthing professional athletes and saying that, and I don't believe it because they didn't provide a link to the study or the survey, but they said that 100% of African-American boys want to be a basketball player or a football player or you know a professional athlete. And, you, and my response to that, I didn't say, well, where's your proof and, and all this? Because I, I know people tend to think of professional athletes as slaves. That's why I don't like metaphors when we got real slavery going on and they ain't being paid millions of dollars to play a game. All right. But I said to him, you know what? I rather my grandsons want to be a football player rather than a slave catcher or a prison plantation overseer. So, so if that's true, I'm thankful that they would rather be professional athletes than professional slavers. And, and so that's, that's all I got to say, say about that. Think about that. All right. Because that, that's, he going to say to me in response, oh, you're going to say that, but the black community want cops to, to understand them. And I'm like, the black community don't need no cops to understand us, we need them to leave us the heck alone. That's what we need. We need for them to stop coming into our communities uh, with these little petty fines uh, on poor people that lead them into prison or into the jail, cause them to lose jobs and, and just you know keep that cycle of poverty going. I said we need for them to quit gunning down people with their hands up and all. And, and this was a black person I was talking to. And, and he just didn't seem to get it. Okay. There are worse things than in this society than playing professional sports that your children could aspire to be. That's right. You could be a monster and not look like one. With this here asset seizure laws that are going on, is a constant violation of our Fourth Amendment rights, constant violation of our Sixth Amendment rights, constant violation of our Eighth Amendment rights. 95% of the people who are sitting in jails right now are there because they can't afford to get out, period, which is a violation of the Eighth Amendment that guarantees protection 
from excessive fines, fees, and bails. But apparently that's not in play anymore. Same thing with the trials. We don't get them. There's no speedy trials in existence. 95% of all cases, federal cases and state cases on the average, are in, in a plea bargain. That's 95%, not 5%. Almost all of the constitutional amendment is being violated. Only 5% are getting trials. And when it comes to debtors' prisons, in the United States, debtors' prisons were banned under federal law in 1833. A century and a half later, in 1983, the Supreme Court affirmed that incarcerating indigent debtors was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So now we've got the 14th Amendment being violated every day. And uh, we don't really hear any outcry from the organizations you would suspect would be champions of constitutional violations like the ACLU and um, the Southern Poverty Law Center. So we, we don't hear it enough. So you need some more speaking on that one for sure. But there's articles where they explain how some of these police go out with wish lists. We have reported stories here where sheriff's departments are getting upwards of a quarter of a million dollars in salaries every year because of the extra money, which is more than, if not... Uh, as much as their annual salaries that comes in from these asset seizures. Bonus. They use this money to buy everything. Bonus. That's how they get that Bonus. boat. That's how they get that, take them, take their little family on a vacation to Disneyland and all of that. So again, was, you know, um, and then we got certain element of this society that won't talk about a police state. Yes, I'm talking about Alex Jones. You know, when I first became aware of him in 1999, he shares some good information, you know, and and he wasn't this he wasn't showing his racism like he's showing now. But now you compare Alex Jones 1999 where he was saying this is a police state. Now he's on the side of the police. In fact, we played a clip of him where he was telling people to run over protesters and stuff who were protesting police brutality. So, again, I, I say again, there are worse things that children could aspire to be in this society. Yeah, we want them to be doctors, lawyers, educators, scientists, and all, all of that good, good stuff. Artists, you know, musicians, and, and what have you. But everybody can't, don't have the talent or the intelligence to make it in those fields. And so, again... As long as, as long as these children ain't talking about being slave catchers or jail overseers where they're talking about we can't let these people go because we need them to change the oil in our in our uh, cars and, and, and do all this work, you know. Uh, no, no. There are worse things that your child could be. Yeah, this is, this is what we've been doing here today is putting it all together so you can see these different aspects of it and how it's... You know, it really is just infects every aspect of our society uh, because of how the uh, slave trade was transformed through convict leasing and how convict leasing became what we know as mass incarceration and policing for profit. But it never stopped being slavery. It's always no. been slavery. Even Frederick Douglass warned us that this thing is going to come with names and different names and has had different names and it'll have more names. And we mm -hmm. need to pay attention for what new name this monster will come up from under. Uh, just to kind of wrap up this part, and then I did want to add, talk a little bit about the November 4th event. But just to wrap this up and bring it back home, 
is I want to read that letter, Scotty, that was written by Abraham Lincoln in 1860, December 22nd, to A.H. Stevens, his competitor at the time. And uh, his what competitor, he they him, were friends because he was well, in Congress too. That's where how he met him was in Congress. They were friends. Yes, he explains that in the letter, as, as a matter of fact. But at that time, they were in competition for the election. Oh, so, okay. Uh, yeah, at that period in 1860. So he writes this letter to him, and he uses a specific word that you should pay attention to, and that is the word restricted. You have to ask yourself, what does Abraham Lincoln mean when he says it ought to be restricted? He did not use the word abolished, and he did not use the word ended or anything like that. He said restricted. So this starts with Abraham writing, for your eyes only, Honorable A.H. Stevens, my dear sir, your obliging answer to my short notice just received, and for which please accept my thanks. I fully appreciate the present peril the country is in and the weight of responsibility on me. Do the people of the South really entertain fears that a Republican administration would directly or indirectly interfere with their slaves or with them? about their slaves? If they do, I wish to assure you, as once a friend, and still I hope not an enemy, that there is no cause for such fears. The South would be in more danger in this respect. No more danger. In no more danger, would be in no more danger in this respect than it was in the days of Washington. I suppose, however, this does not meet the case. You think slavery is right and ought to be extended while we think it is wrong and ought to be restricted. That, I suppose, is the rub. It is certainly the only substantial difference between us. Yours very truly, Abraham Lincoln. If you've ever read any of Justice Stevens' writings, you would see one of the most racist, sociopathic, murderous, genocidal maniacs you can imagine. And that was his friend. And that was his friend. Mm-hmm. He was telling him clearly, we got a plan. You don't need to worry. The w- South is going to be okay. Well, Max, I want to know who is we. Because we apparently did not include Frederick Douglass. We apparently did not include William Lloyd Garrison. We apparently didn't include John Brown and his sons and, and all those others who worked with him. We apparently didn't. You know, all the abolitionists that we highlight, I can't imagine them saying, oh, we think, I've never read them saying, we think it ought to be restricted. The uh, congressman from Ohio, the senator from Ohio, the senator from South Carolina, uh, and the senator from New Jersey were all involved in the we. So that's the we, not the abolitionists, not the abolitionists. Well, James Ashley was a proposed abolitionist. He even worked on the Underground Railroad, apparently, and he was a congressman and a governor. He is the man that literally gave the uh, written exception clause, the 13th Amendment, with the exception clause to Abraham Lincoln as a proposal uh, that it be ratified by Congress. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. Your actions speak louder than words. When I yes, look up the definition of abolition, it don't say nothing about restricting. So that's the mystery that I'm on right now, Scotty, and I'm sure you'll be on it for a while, and our listeners may be on it for a while, too. We want to find out 
who actually put this together? Who came up with the idea? Where was the debates about it? Who argued against this specific aspect of the 13th Amendment, this exception clause? And who defined it? Where is that information available? I'm sure it's out there somewhere. If you know, let us know. Well, again, Lincoln actually gave them everything. So here he is in 1860 just telling them. Okay, so again, this goes back to um, what's the chief of staff name again? John Kelly. This John goes Kelly. back to him talking about there was some truth in what he said about they wouldn't compromise. It was the South that wouldn't compromise. They wanted to, instead of them being satisfied with what they were already doing, they wanted to keep expanding it and expanding it and expanding it. And this is before the Civil War. Now, after the Civil War, there have been no more compromise from me. It had been, been the gallows for these people. That's what it had been after they committed acts of treason. And then slavery would have been abolished. But did he abolish slavery? No, he gave them what he was giving, what he was telling Alexander Stevens what they thought it should be restricted. And that what is that restriction? Is that they restricting it to the prisons through the um, exception clause of the Thirteenth Amendment? Yep, and and it happened so quick, like everybody knew their part to play as soon as the exception clause was uh, ratified. Immediately, for some unknown reason, William Lloyd Garrison wanted to disband the Anti-Slavery Society. Like, immediately. And the prisons here in South Carolina, which were built that very next year, 1866, or opened that very next year, went from 90% white to 90% black in 24 months, in under 24 months. And you can rest assured that the black people were not getting the same treatment that those white inhabitants had just had that were populating it prior to that. So... That was a, a quick transition. And then they went through the whole period afterwards with the Reconstruction era where the South got a chance to rebuild its economy. And it didn't do Re Reconstruct slavery. Huh? Reconstruct slavery. Right. In Alabama, 80% of their state revenue uh, was coming from, in the 1900s, convict leasing. So how did they go? They, they didn't, nothing changed. You went from 80% of your revenue coming in from slavery to 80% of your revenue coming in from convict leasing. And as Jay Mancini said, the only difference between slavery and convict leasing was with convicts so plentiful they were seen as disposable. So for the slavers, right. the people who was managing these human bodies, it was easier for them because they no longer had to care about anyone's health or well-being right. provide for them. They were literally had become property that was disposable. Right. They didn't have any monetary investment where they whereas they just snatched them off the street and and charged them with one of them black code laws that they passed which is represented today by things like the so-called war on drugs and, and and the asset uh forfeiture, asset seizure forfeiture laws. People ain't yeah, nothing really changed. They just refined it. They attack your money now. Your money got to defend itself. Like your money is guilty until proven innocent. You might be innocent until proven, but the money is guilty until proven innocent. We're gonna take it all, even to the point where I believe there was a story uh, that's linked in our article there, where a young boy sold forty dollars worth of weed on his front porch, and the police took his parents home for it. Took his parents home for it. Wow. 
So with that, unless there are any more comments or from our, our listeners or callers, anybody want to say anything else? I want to transition to the Antifa event that's coming up and go over that briefly and then get into our final segment. So, Scotty? Yeah, we'll let, um, no, there's no one on the board, but we can take our last break. Okay, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and we're proud to announce that we are the official introductory program for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. We'll be right back after the message. Providing new black media for the masses. Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here on the BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the upcoming November fourth event. You know, I've got some friends who are comrades uh, in the anarchist movement and in Antifa, and they actually asked me, Max, could you come out and march with us to have you there? They're expecting to have a relatively peaceful march. That's their intention. They want to have sustained protests, but they want to have uh, in regards to the fascism that is happening in the United States and against Trump in particular. And I think that's the only thing that made me say, you know, I don't really want to, really want to march against Trump because that would be like fighting mass incarceration. Trump is just the latest face. He's not the first racist president and he is certainly not the worst racist president. He's just the latest race, racist president. And yes, he has a lot of potential for destruction but not just for one community anymore. He'll screw everybody over now. So welcome to the club. In any case, as I said, based on the reports and the people that I know, they said the organizers of the protests on November 4th are hoping for a nonviolent demonstration reminiscent of the Women's March earlier this year. So that's their intention, but they want to do it in a sustained way. And I can agree with that. But apparently, a lot of these right-wing organizations are jumping on this opportunity to possibly make a very deadly move. You can see in one video a fake policeman with an iron-on badge sitting in a fake police car with a real-ass rifle behind him or semi-automatic weapon talking about, you know, uh, attacks that are going to be happening on American citizens. And there's another guy who's saying that uh, now the races have planned to use this opportunity to initiate a civil war, and they're going to just go out and start shooting black people wherever they can find them. If you just Google the event, you'll see titles like War, Antifa Plans Nationwide Terror Attack for November 4th. Uh, November 4th, Fast Facts You Need to Know, Deep State Planning, Anti-Trump Protests in 14 Cities, November 4th. 
Antifa planning nationwide riots November 4th. Conspiracy claims civil war. Blackouts planned November 4th. And Scotty, I know you've seen that story too. Uh, this unsourced uh, story about how there's going to be an EMP that's going to take out all the power. This is pretty amazing, but it's dangerous because they're taking an opportunity for people to use their voice and exercise democracy as it should be as an opportunity to potentially start shooting and killing people like they just recently did in New York. Or Charlottesville. Or Charlottesville. Yes. And uh, many other places uh, throughout the United States that we don't hear about. But I just heard about this story early this morning, uh, about 9 o'clock this morning. Somebody had sent me a video. Then later, my sister sent me the same video. And so I listened to the video of these two women and they saying go to the DOD website there's going to be an EMP and all the electricity in the United States is going to be knocked out and all this so I went to the DOD website I, I couldn't find anything and the only source that was provided to me is from a site that has been known to get it wrong I'm not going to call them a conspiracy theorist website because that word gets that term gets played out but let me just say they've been known for putting out incorrect information and so I, I ain't paid no mind but I kept I, all of a sudden I'm seeing this blow up I mean this video had already been seen about 900,000 times when I've seen it when I saw it this morning and then I'm seeing all these people in my timeline talking about it so I was like let me see if I can source this I was unable to source it I said this is likely a hoax I also saw somebody else Share saying that there were going to be riots by Antifa. And I was like, I've only been hearing that from right-wing trumpeters and, and what have you. I said, I don't believe that. Now, you the first person that I spoke to that has confirmed that there will be protests, but not national riots, not, you know, going out there to commit uh, acts of violence or or destruction and all of that that good stuff so I just like to tell people we have to start doing more critical thinking we have to not just share everything that's shared with us without us first checking the information you know in journalism they say you want to have at least two sources you want three ideally but you know the standard is two sources two independent sources confirming the same thing well you know we got a bunch of those websites out there putting out a lot of incorrect information so I don't think two of those would qualify but there's a process people and and I'm really speaking to the people who have an audience on social media who I know share information a lot and a lot of the information is good and you hurt your credibility with the people that look to you for this information when you don't do your due diligence and your homework to source it out. And sometimes you won't be able to source everything out, okay? But you should at least try. Um, to me, that's a form of mind control. So I, if I, I'm not going to tell people what to do uh, on, on the 4th, um, but I'm not going to be caught up in it. All right, I, I don't march anyway to begin with. I, I, I not that I don't see the value in it as a recruiting tool and as a public awareness tool. It's just that I just don't march. I, I just don't. I rather report on it 
you know, and, and provide support that way. Um, but I, I don't march. Um, but just be Max is right to raise the alarm. Be very careful because like one of the things I was saying was that people could be saying, putting this out there to make something pop off. And I think that's exactly what Max just said. They trying to get something started. So while I don't think an EMP is going to happen, if you don't already have a Faraday cage to protect your electronics or made a Faraday shield to shield, um, you know, um, the electronics of your car, again, this EMP is not going to happen, people. Um, it, it's it, The DOD put out a Twitter that they're going to have an amateur it's the ham operators. They're going to simulate a communications blackout, which will be one of the things that could happen if an EMP went off. But do you really think right. the government will be telling you that, hey, we're going we gonna to set off a real EMP just to see how people respond? No, they're not going to tell you that, okay, if that was to be the case. So, but if you don't already have those things Considering some of the stuff that's come that Max just talked about, you need to be buying some guns and some bullets. That's what you need to how you need to be preparing, okay, to produce to defend yourself from these very real threats of these terrorists out here. And we got an administration, and again, John Kelly defending terrorists, Donald Trump. Defending terror. Oh, there were good people on both sides, is what he said about the Charlottesville attack. Did he say that about that dude running down people in New York? Did he say, oh, there are good people on in 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 uh, uh, ISIS and in Al Qaeda and and no, he not saying that. So the government ain't here to protect you, black people or non-white people or would be anybody that would be a target of these terrorists. So you need to be preparing to protect yourself, all right? That's my thoughts on it, Max. I have hesitant advice, Scotty, because, you know, the reality of the circumstances is we live in a state of terrorism, constant terrorism, particularly minority communities have always been in that constant terrorism. You and I have stood together in my daughter's community where the police were roaming, and they weren't roaming, they were hunting, and you saw them just as well as I did. Yes, hunting. People living in poverty, and, uh, and under adversity with little babies running all around, you know, without parents there for them. That's the circumstances that people live under. Now, everybody else in the country is starting to live under them very same circumstances of a police state. So anything is possible. You know, you could have a guy shooting from a window and kill a bunch of people at a concert or somebody ride down a bike road and kill somebody or somebody ride through the protests and kill somebody. These things can happen. Just keep that in mind and keep your neck on a swivel. Paranoia might save your life. And I'm not going to tell you to be brave. I'm going to tell you to be careful. It's just walking down the street is being brave these days with these nutcases out here doing the things that they're doing and being empowered by our own uh, by our own president of the United States and the Congress right. and the Senate are really empowering these nutcases. Yes, they are, Max. Well, I, I'm agree. I, I'm in full agreement with you. Keep that head on a swivel. You ever heard the term defensive driving? Well, you got to do defensive walking now. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And if you're taking your babies, would you keep in mind that you're risking... Please don't take no babies out there. 
Scotty. I've taken my babies under all the circumstances. I, I'm talking like, about. Everywhere. I'm talking about what is planned for the fourth. Please don't yes, take yes. no children out there. Yeah, don't. I wouldn't suggest. I think this is an adult circumstance. I, I want to see how this unfolds, and I'll, I'll keep everybody reported on my page. Well, Scott, it looks like unless you have anything else you want to cover we, on our final segments of the evening. Um, no, sir. Uh, it's been a real good program tonight. Uh, a lot of things came out. A couple mysteries, as a matter of fact. Uh, I think we'll, I guess, let me see. We'll start with, let me pull something up here. Our, all right. I think I've got, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm looking else, for... Okay, I have the abolitionist in profile, and while, while right. I'm doing that, you could do the other one. All right, so all right, that was good. All right, this is actually this profile has been published by Max on New Abolitionist Radio. It was published Sunday. Um, the, our abolitionist in profile is Elizabeth Freeman, 1742 to 1829. She was born into slavery in. Claverack, New York in 1742. Upon suffering physical abuse from her enslaver's wife, Freeman escaped her home and refused to return. She found a sympathetic ear with attorney Theodore Sedgwick, the father of the writer Catherine Sedgwick. Apparently, as she served dinner to her, her enslavers, she had heard them speaking of freedom. In this case, freedom from England. And she applied the concepts of equality and freedom for all to herself. In 1781, Freeman, with the assistance of Sedgwick, initiated the case Brom and Bett versus Ashley that set a precedent for the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts. According to Massachusetts, Judicial Review, the 1781 Berkshire County case of Brom and Bett versus Ashley, often referred to as the Mum Bett or Elizabeth Freeman case, was unique because it occurred less than one year after the adoption of the Massachusetts Constitution. And because, in contrast to prior freedom suits, there was no claim that John Ashley the slaver had violated a specific law. This case was a direct challenge to the very existence of slavery in Massachusetts. Once free, Freeman stayed with Sedgwick family as a servant. Sedgwick, in arguing the later case, used the example of Freeman when he said in defense of the abolition of slavery, if there could be a practical a refutation of the imagined superiority of our race to hers, the life and character of this woman would afford that re how you say that word? Refutation. Yeah. So refutation, refutation yes. Refutation. Um so our abolitionist in profile is Elizabeth Freeman, 1742, 1829. Salute. Salute to Mumbat. <laughs> Indeed, man. Again, again, this goes back to when we were talking about the RICO charges with the JCS company. Mm -hmm. This goes back to us um mounting a challenge or excuse me, in mounting efforts to remove the exception clause of the thirteenth amendment 
not only the federal constitution, but the state constitutions. If you did not hear attorney Akisha Shabazz, who was our surprise guest last week, I specifically asked her, she's an attorney, I specifically asked her, what would it mean to remove the exception clause of the 13th Amendment? And then she said that opens it up to all kind of lawsuits and, and legal proceedings because then you become, once you say that slavery is forever abolished, now when you pay prisoners in California to risk their lives fighting fires, you got to pay them at least minimum wage. And when you got to pay them minimum wage, like has been said, it, I think we was talking, Angela Davis, we said something last week about Angela Davis. If you combine all the hours that are worked by people in slavery, it would amount to billions of dollars annually. They ain't trying to pay nobody in prison. You got to remove the profit incentive, people. If there's no profit incentive, they don't want to spend money where they can't make money. So, you know, it, like some old revolution, I ain't going to call them old, some elder revolutionaries who have, who have uh, been in either prison as political prisoners or were part of the Black Panther Party told me that we should be doing everything we can through every cha channel and that includes the courts that includes using a vote pending revolution okay cause we can't cause we can't sit around waiting for a mass uprising and another civil war to break out we got like Malcolm said by any means necessary if that means challenging stuff through the courts if that means uh, removing the exception clause from these constitution we got to do whatever we got to do to bring relief to these people speaking of relief Scotty that's our next segment is our rider of the 21st century underground railroad this week uh, we have a different way of getting out of prison being presented so today our rider is Bobby Hines and he's out of Detroit and this happened two days ago Bobby Hines stepped forward smiling as he embraced the sister of the man he was convicted of killing locked up for 28 years he long wanted to meet Valencia Warren Gibbs to talk with her about that night in 89 when her older brother James was shot after Hines and two others confronted him in a feud over drugs at 15, Hines had been condemned to life in prison without parole. Now he was out, 43-year-old man, navigating life in a city he'd left behind as an eighth grader. Slowly, he was checking off things he needed to do. He'd already found work, enjoyed a meal in an actual restaurant, and learned how to take photos with his new cell phone. And on this Sunday, 20 days into his freedom, he'd come to sit down with his victim's sister and take responsibility for his role in Warren's death. You know why, he told her, tapping a forefinger on the table for emphasis, I'm never going to forget what I did. He would not forget, but he could make amends, move on and do his best to make the most of his extraordinary second chance. After nearly three decades behind bars, he was learning what it meant to be Bobby Hines again, older, hopefully wiser, and a stranger to the world of 2017. We made it, Hines declared, almost inaudibly, as if he'd just crossed an imaginary finish line. He walked out of prison at 9 a.m. promptly on September morning, arm in arm with his sister Myra, who beamed, laughed, and rested her head on her brother's shoulder as they approached an SUV waiting to whisk him away. More than 10,000 days had passed behind bars, but to hear him tell it, Hines had refused to believe he'd die on the inside. God ain't going to let that happen, he'd said, 
ever confident that one day he would find his way to freedom. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and say welcome to freedom. Salute welcome and to welcome freedom, to freedom. freedom. Yes, sir. And I guess we're down to our final one. Wrap this up in a nice, neat bow, as we always say. Past, present, and future all put together here on this program. Today we're going to remember in uh, the Slave Revolt of 1842. Of the five civilized tribes, the Cherokees were the largest holders of Africans as chattel slaves. By 1860, the Cherokees had 4,600 slaves. Many Cherokees depended on them as a bridge to white society. English interpreters and translators. Mainly, however, slaves worked on farms as laborers or in homes as maids and servants. The Cherokees feared the aspect of a slave revolt, and that is just what happened in 1842 at Weber's Fails. On the morning of November 15th, more than 25 slaves, enslaved Africans, most from the Joseph Vian Plantation revolted. They locked their masters and overseers in their homes and cabins while they slept. The slaves stole guns, horses, mules, ammunition, food, and supplies. At daybreak, the group, which included men, women, and children, headed towards Mexico, where slavery was illegal. In the Creek Nation, the Cherokee slaves were joined by a Creek slave, bringing the group total to more than 35. The fugitives fought off and killed a couple of slave hunters in the Choctaw Nation. The Cherokee Nation sent the Cherokee militia under Captain John Drew with 87 men to catch the runaways. This expedition was authorized by the Cherokee National Council in Tequa on November 17, 1842. The militia caught up with the uh, enslaved Africans seven miles north of the Red River on November 28, 1842. The tired, famished fugitives offered no resistance. The party returned to Tahalqua on December 8, 1842. Five slaves were executed and Joseph Van put the majority of his rebellious slaves to work on the steamboats, which worked the Arkansas, Mississippi, and Ohio rivers. The Cherokees blamed the incident on free, armed black Seminoles who lived in close proximity to the Cherokee slaves at Fort Gibson. On December 2, 1842, the Cherokee Nation passed a law com commanding all free African Americans except former Cherokee slaves to leave the nation. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the slavery votes of 1842. And so, shout out to the I mean the descendants of their victims because they've been battling in court against them to I wouldn't call it reparations but the Cherokee Nation expelled them from the tribe you know because they were citizens of the Cherokee Nation um, after the Civil War and they kicked them out and so they sued in court and they won to get their citizenship to the Cherokee Nation and all the benefits that that entails restored. So, you know, people still, people fighting, man, on so many different levels. And so I just want to acknowledge them and their victory. Indeed, brother. Well, we're at our closing last couple of minutes. Do you have any final comments for the evening, Scotty Reed? Yes. Um, again, I just want to say how how proud I am um, that New Abolitionist Radio is now the official radio program for the Millions for Human Rights Coalition. We will do our very best to to represent 
which I feel like we do that every every time we come on air. We try to represent this issue in the realest way possible, um, bringing you facts, bringing you stories, and there's never any shortage of stories. I mean, Max probably got about 20 stories that we didn't share tonight. Okay? Yeah. So, so this is a very real issue, people. And pre-1865, slavery didn't end itself. And prison slavery today via the 13th Amendment is not going to end itself. It's going to take abolitionists. Join the movement. Yes, sir. Thank you, Scotty. Um, I would like to say we're looking for volunteers to help in a multitude of ways in our efforts to establish a multi-state voter initiative to remove individual exception clauses to slavery from state constitutions. If you're interested, go to facebook.com slash amend the amendments. That's facebook.com slash amend the amendments and leave a hashtag volunteering under the request for assistance. That would be hashtag volunteering. So we know that that's what you're doing. We're trying to pull together teams now uh, across the country to fight this thing head on. Also, Sister Leila Aziz is working out in California with Initiate Justice to start voter uh, drives for prisoners. So she'll be needing assistance for that as well. We'll keep you updated on it and hopefully uh, some of you volunteer your time. But most of all, you know, like every week, I don't say this because I don't believe it. I believe this is the true, <clears throat> the true way to end all this. You talk a lot about revolution, but abolition, slavery abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time. Rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up 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 r